Hey everybody, welcome to D3 Glory Days on the Sidious Mag Podcast Network. I'm Noah Drotti. This is Stu Newstat. We are here with another really cool episode for you today, actually. Another kind of coach's corner episode, and Stu will come in and introduce our guest as always here in a second. But first, it's my job to bug you about supporting D3 Glory Days, and you can do that in a number of ways. First, just following us on social media, Twitter, Instagram. We keep uh, some really good content on those platforms. So seek us out, give us a follow. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can go ahead and rate it. Five stars would be awesome. Uh, You can also leave us a little review if you enjoy spending some time with us every week. If you want to go beyond that and support this podcast financially, there's a couple of ways to do that. You can find us on Venmo, you can find us on Patreon, and you can leave us a tip there. Think of it as the internet tip jar if you enjoy what the content uh, we bring to you every week. It helps us grow the sport, grow our coverage. Every little bit really goes a long way. There's links to all of that in the show notes wherever you're listening and you can find it there. Stu, who do we have on this week? Yeah, today we're joined by three-time Olympian and the head coach of Calvin Cross Country and Track and Field, Brian Deemer. On April 28th, Coach Deemer announced his retirement. So we have another legendary coach in Division Three retiring And we sat down with him to not only learn about his Olympic career, but also his career at Calvin. If you've been to a meet with Calvin, then you were in the midst of a bronze medalist in his first ever Olympics in 1984. Coach Deemer earned the bronze in the steeplechase, which he calls the pinnacle of his running career. We talked a little bit more about what else his career had in store, but then shifted focus to his retirement from Calvin and his career, some stats for you, even though he didn't mention them at all. He combined 43 conference titles, 34 of them on the men's side and 34 of them were in a row. He came to Calvin in 1986. They were second that year. And after that, he never lost a conference cross country title on the men's side. In addition to the conference success, Calvin men have won four national titles under his watch, as well as four runner-up performances as well. He took over the women's cross-country program in 2006 and added an additional four podium finishes as well. But you'll never hear that from Coach Deemer himself. We barely talked about his success and more so about the impact that he had on his athletes and the impact that they had on him as well. Another fantastic episode and another retiring coach. We're losing a lot of great coaches to retirement this year. Yeah, but it's great interview content. So they, they can just keep it up, I guess, because we always get good episodes out of it. Um, Retire yeah, and come on D3 Glory Days. Yeah, that's actually someone should make the announcement on D3 Glory Days. That would be cool. But a couple of like really cool takeaways for me from this episode was like, one, we've never talked to somebody who is balancing a career as a professional athlete and a coach at the same time. And so that was really interesting to hear about. And also coach Deemer seems to like have a real knack for the psychological side of the sport. And he tells some really cool stories in this podcast where just like, you know, through envisioning races and just focusing on the psychological aspect of the sport, he was kind of able to even perform physically even better. So there's some really cool stories in this episode too, but coach Deemer has got a 5k road race coming up and we're going to patch him in here to tell you a little bit about it. Until then, here's to the glory days. All right. Hey, we're going to have a great race at the uh, the Brian Deemer family of races. 
on Saturday, June 11th. Uh, come on out and run a fast 5K in Cutlerville, and uh, it should be pretty hot. The streets are going to be hot, and uh, yeah, come check us out. Sit back, relax. Here's to the glory days. All right, welcome back to D3 Glory Days. Today, we have another great episode. Another great coach announced his retirement, and we're joined by Coach Brian Deemer. Coach, welcome to D3 Glory Days. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, we're excited to learn about your career as a runner, but also as a coach. And we recently interviewed Coach Frank Ramoroso out of North Central College and the opening question to him that we're going to present to you is how did you know it was time to retire? That is a loaded question because I absolutely love coaching and I love the kids. I love the competition. I love D3. It just, it made a big impact on my life. I I would say that, you know, I've grown to know how fast five years goes by and, you know, life, life goes quick And there are some things that I wanted to do yet with my life after 36 years of of coaching and my wife supporting me the whole way. But, um, you know, there's some things that we would like to do. We have we have uh, four children and they're all married and we have five grandkids. And um, so they're playing soccer on Saturdays. They're you know, they're doing different things. And I just I really want to be available for my wife, Carrie, and also for uh, my kids and my grandkids. And so it's it's a really tough decision that uh, it took took over two years to uh, come to grips with it, quite honestly. Yeah, I was going to ask how long it's been since you've been kind of wrestling with that decision. You know what? What finally pushed you over the edge and kind of convinced you that that now was the right time? When you know, obviously, two years ago that started percolating for the first time. Yeah, you know the COVID, the COVID situation was tough, but that probably kept me in it an extra year and a half because I just couldn't see the kids having to deal with one more adjustment. So you know, I I just I started. I started knowing it. I started just thinking about, you know, things. The administrative stuff has gotten to be tougher and tougher over the years. And, um, you know, the hands-on stuff, if that's all coaching was, you know, that'd be great. But um, I also own a landscaping business. We have, you know, about 130 employees. And so I get up at 545 every day and four o'clock I start practice. And when I get home, you know, at seven o'clock, you know, have dinner and whatnot. After that, then I have to do my, my administrative stuff. And, you know, I found myself falling asleep doing the administrative stuff. And, and, you know, it's just, it gets to be difficult. So that, that's, uh, those are some of the things that, that were going through my mind. But then, uh, then COVID hit. And wow, that was a challenge for coaches. And it would have been the easiest thing to say, hey, I'm out of here, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't do that to the kids who had had so much taken away. 
you mentioned, you know, wanting to spend time with family and soccer games on the weekends, you know, for a lot of maybe student athletes don't realize how much time and effort coaches put into their teams and how much they kind of have to maybe balance their family life for young coaches starting off that may not realize that because they're not married or don't have a family yet. What advice would you give them to be able to be able to coach for 36 years, raise four kids and have a, a side a side business of 130 employees and make it all work. Yeah, it is a balance. That's for sure. And um, my life, you know, works together, you know, my, my coaching and my, my work, it's amazing how many, how many jobs, landscape jobs I get through the coaching contacts that I have. And, you know, it just, it just works. The Lord has provided. Um, I think that the best advice I would give is, um, Make sure that you give to your your spouse so that it's not something that they are, you know, thinking all the time that, wow, this is taking away from me. And um, yes, I put a lot of time into coaching in the team, um, but it wasn't at the expense of my family, my wife and my my kids. Um, you know, we, we always tried to go to the to the school things, you know, there were times that, you know, I'd be sitting at the, uh, the school choir about falling asleep, <laughs> but you know, you, you go, you go do those things. And, um, my wife and I always did that stuff together. Carrie always supported me. And even in some of the tougher earlier years, when I said, Hey, is it, is it time? Do I need to, you know, spend more time with the family and stuff? Then she said, this is really good for our kids to see what you are giving to other, you know, these, these college kids. And um, our kids are learning from this. They need to see you doing this. You know, you're at your best, you're doing this and it makes a difference. And my kids were blessed through that whole thing. My wife didn't go to all the meets but she went to enough things and I included her on enough things like pancake breakfasts and stuff like that. She loved these kids. She knew them by name and she knew, you know, kind of who was doing what. And, um, and she followed that and she always, she always supported and loved these kids. Um, her and the family always went on the spring break trip. And especially when, when my kids were younger, they had, all these college kids just doting on them and, you know, giving them so much attention and they all had their favorite athletes. It was amazing. So we had a lot of benefits along the way, but, but um, I think it was intentional to pro provide some of that and allow um, my wife to be involved with some of that stuff. Will you be retiring from the landscaping business or selling the business? No, I'm not going to be doing that. That's, you know, it, it comes down to, you know, just burning the candle at both ends, you know, for, for a long time. I am uh, one of three owners. I have a brother and a sister and myself bought my dad out and uh, we have grown the business since then. Uh, there's, so there's, there's third ownerships and out of out of us siblings, we have sons or daughters who are, are 
now buying into the business. And so there's a transition going. My son is starting to buy into the business as of this past January. And, um, and he has shown, you know, a deep interest and commitment to doing the work that it takes. And he has worked three years full time uh, before he could do that. And now he is starting to, to buy in. And um, it's just fun to see him take that ownership and, and take it and, and uh, do so well with it. But I want to I want to be there to help him uh, kind of make that transition, and I you know over the next five seven years I think that I will just start you know stepping stepping out of certain roles and um, and that will that will start. But there is no <laughs> I'm afraid to say there's no way that I can retire at this point. Are you uh, worried you're just going to start channeling 60 hours a week of your time <laughs> into I, I that could business? In I could in a heartbeat, and that would yeah. be a that that would be a tragedy. Uh, at that point, seriously, then I should have stayed coaching. So, you know, I need to um, I need to make some balanced decisions, and uh, yeah, and go from there with with some things. I am going to the Olymp or not the Olympic trials, the uh, the World Championships out in Oregon this summer. Harry and I are going to take our small motorhome. We're gonna we're gonna cruise the the states, and we're gonna head all the way out there, and we're going to the World Championships. Oh, that's awesome, Eugene. That's gonna be a blast. Oh, that's really cool. As media folks in D3 running, we hear rumblings of all sorts of things. We heard rumblings about this retirement a little, little earlier, maybe than you announced it. You know, April 28th, 14 days ago, two weeks ago, you announced your retirement. Why wait so long into the season instead of like a Coach K retirement tour where you get all the presents from all the MIAA schools and, and all of that stuff? Yeah. You know, I don't know how to answer that for why the school announced it so late. Mm. I announced it to my athletes uh, last August at our cross-country camp. And oh, wow. that was the toughest thing for me to do. And um, yeah, to stand up there in front of the kids and say, this is my last go at this. And um, yeah, the, uh, the freshmen that were there were, uh, you know, that took them by surprise. And, but, you know, I committed to them that I would finish strong, just like any relay race. I was going to run all the way through the, the handoff and, um, so, you know, I think that we've had, we've had a fantastic year. We've had a lot of fun. The kids have, um, have really responded. We've had a lot of personal bests and uh, yeah, we're, we're running strong. Kind of take us and set the scene when you made that announcement to the team, like what, what was the reaction? I mean, obviously freshmen were surprised. Did the upperclassmen kind of feel it coming at all? Or was it a shock to everybody in the room? I think it was a shock because you know, I, I've always had good energy for, for the kids anyway. And, you know, I'm sure that some of them saw that, oh, wow, Deemer's got a lot on his plate and, you know, stuff like that. But I've always had a lot on my plate and I've always had really good coaches surrounding me to be able to get, get things done. Um, but um, 
I, I think that it would have to be somebody really perceptive to have figured that out, you know, earlier on. I, uh, I kept it pretty close to the vest. Similar to North Central, you all are hiring an alum, Nicole Kramer, to, to take over the reins. Was that important to you to make sure that you'd have an alum kind of taking over, knowing what was kind of happening inside the program? I, I did not have a part in the hiring process. There was a committee headed up by, by um, our athletic director, Jim Timmer. Um, I certainly asked him a lot of questions and I, you know, I tried to get his, you know, what was going on many times. And I certainly told him what I thought was important, but to answer your question, the, the night that I knew that it was going to be one of three alumni, I had tears in my eyes. I was, I was really happy for that. And, you know, I, I said at the beginning, this would really be important to have somebody who understands the culture that, you know, that we've uh, worked on and developed over many years. It would be nice to have that understood. And certainly the new coach is going to come on and put their flavor on things, which is good, you know, but to have a coach that doesn't understand the, the culture, some of the traditions, some of the, some of those, those, yeah, those little things that make you unique, that it just would be a, a part of it was gone and, and not going to come back. Did you look at any meets differently? Like the Calvin Knight invite obviously is a historical meet. We went up there as athletes. I'm sure the MIA conference meet, especially for cross country with the streak on the line, so to speak, you know, did you see these meets differently? Did you take them in and, and kind of bask in the moment for a little bit longer than normal? I did. I did every, <laughs> and my daughter Mackenzie helped me do that. <laughs> she, she would, come up to me and say, Oh, here's, we got to get this picture. We got to get one or the archives and stuff like that. And, you know, there were times that, that I would get, you know, yeah, almost, almost uh, ready to cry. You know, it's like, Oh my goodness, this is the last time this means something to me. You know, it's, it's not, it's not fun to, to be leaving something that, um, you know, you've had so much enjoyment out of all these years. Uh, the MIAA conference championship, that was a big one. And I, I really wanted to finish strong and do well. The very first year that I coached, we came in second and did not win the conference championship. Um, we had started with four guys. That's what I had to start with four four men on the team. And we ended up with, with 13 men on that team, but we almost won the thing. And Hope College won it, and uh, but that was the last time since. So we've won it every year since. You know that that has just really been a neat thing. You've been around competitive running for your entire adult life, first as one of the best athletes in the world, which we'll get to, and then as uh, you know one of the best coaches in Division Three. You know what is your involvement in running going to look like? moving forward strictly fan capacity are you 
going to be taking on any athletes on the side? Um, how, how do you hope to be involved in the sport moving forward? I am not sure how it's going to work out. I think that a lot of it is going to depend on, on Nicole Kramer and, you know, how she would, um, how she would like that. I mean, she's always been, uh, you know, very, very open and, you know, oh yeah, love to have you come back and stuff like that. But I want to give her room to coach and um, I want to let her put, put her, you know, put her flavor on things. And, and at a certain point, I would like to certainly be able to, um, to come and watch meets, maybe even some workouts and stuff like that. But I think that I need to be able to, you know, kind of observe and see how, how she's operating with the kids and respect that. And then, uh, you know, take cues from her. I would love to um, be able to come along as, you know, alumni, emeritus coach, whatever, and be able to, to uh, continue to support and uh, yeah, just, just be there for that program. So now we want to kind of jump back into your origins in running, um, you know, not spoiling anything here by saying you're a three-time Olympian, you ran for the University of Michigan, kind of take us back to when you first maybe started to understand that you had some serious talent. Um, you were a state champion in high school. Like when, when did it start to click for you that running was going to be like a major driving force of your life? I would say I, I found out quite early. See, I was always the shortest kid in my class and you know, that just, that just drove me. And I loved basketball. I love football and baseball. And that's what I did every day, you know, at school, I would get to school 45 minutes before the bell and I would play. And every day I had a bloody nose because I was playing so hard. Well, when I started running, then uh, our very first meet was an invitational. And I think I finished second or third. And I was, I was the first person on our high school team, which, wow that, that was pretty cool. And it, it just made me feel like, wow, I finally, you know, I found something that I'm really good at. And, um, I had a coach who, who recognized that and, uh, and, and he developed me and, you know, I was able to develop to the point of getting a call from Ron Warhurst at the university of Michigan. He called me three days before the state meet my senior year and, and asked me if I would like to come to Michigan. I said, yes, <laughs> I didn't, didn't go there for a visit or anything. I just said, yes. And, um, you know, it was just something that I knew. And, uh, and he really developed me there at the university of Michigan. And, um, you know, from, from there I was, I was going to be done my senior year and all of a sudden I won the national title. And so I had to do some different things. Are you gonna to go to the US nationals? You, you qualified with your time. I said, what's that? Well, it's a meet at Indianapolis and it's in two weeks. Okay, yeah, I'll do it. And um, so I ran that and I came in second and they said, hey, you qualified for the world championships in Helsinki, Finland. I said, cool, all right. And so then, I started thinking, 
you know, top three make the Olympic team. 1984 was the next year. Hey, I have a shot to make the Olympic team. So I decided to, um, to keep on running. And, um, and it was at that time that Nike picked me up and, um, 1984 was the, the first Olympics that I ever watched. And, uh, here I was in it. So it, it was just, it was so cool, uh, to be on that fast track to success. But I think that I had great coaches, Paul Osteen in, in high school at South Christian high and Ron Warhurst at, at the university of Michigan. Would you say you're like naiveness? Um, maybe there's a better word for that, but being naive to the naivete. sport. Of naivete. Naivete. Ooh, see, we learn something new every day. Would well, you I say you're that. You naivete <laughs> helped you be competitive and because not really know what was at stake? Absolutely. You know, I wish that more of my athletes just believed me when I said, you know, that, hey, you're ready. You're ready to run. Because in 84, then uh, Ron Warhurst said, you know, I think you can medal. And I said, really? You think I can medal? Okay. All right. Well, let's, you know, I have to make the finals in order to do that. And so he put it in my mind that I was going to make the finals and I was going to make a run at, at meddling. And I just believed him. I didn't, I didn't question it. I just said, okay, we've done the training. And, and uh, if you think that I'm, you know, at that point, I'm going to give it a go. Let's do it. And I, I didn't put too much thought into it. I think that there's, there's a lot of my athletes that I've coached over the years. Some of the ones that put too much thought into it are the ones that struggle. Those that put more faith and trust in it and just go out there and work hard and, and uh, put their energies towards uh, the task at hand are the ones that really respond. When you showed up to that first Olympic games or even the first U S championship, you could do either one. Did, did you know who the other men on the line were? I mean, were you keeping tabs on the sport very closely or were you just showing up just absolutely blind? The only one that I knew was Henry Marsh because, you know, he was from the United States and he was, you know, somebody who had been touted as, you know, one of the best distance runners in America and certainly, you know, one of the best distance hurdlers ever. And um, so I knew that I had a, a really good, oh, what do you, what do you call it? Um, I'm not going to call him a mentor, but he was, he was just a, a really good, you know, role model, somebody that, okay, he's, he's the best. I want to be like him. And, um, you know, I want to, I want to be able to run the steeplechase like him. And, um, you know, I certainly had my own style and my own, uh, my own strengths and, and weaknesses, but, um, I just always, you know, strove to be the best that I could be. Take us through that Olympic final or just maybe the Olympics in general, but in LA in 84 bronze medal, your career best time. So has to be an extreme, probably your pinnacle of your career highlights. I'd say maybe there's some other, you know, take us through just that experience and what that was like seeing on the podium here in the national anthem. Yeah, it was amazing. I will say that that I think part of part of the the biggest weapons that that I had inside of my running arsenal was the ability to to focus and visualize 
And um, I remember before the Olympic trials, I had thought, okay, in order to be on the Olympic team, I'm probably going to have to run, you know, around, around 821. And then I, I went out to Eugene, Oregon to run an athletics West meet. And it was in conjunction. I think it was on the Monday after a, the NCAA meet, which was probably Thursday, Friday, Saturday, where Farley Gerber from Weber state won the steeple and he ran eight nineteen, And that, wow, that set my mind back. It's like, Whoa, I thought that, you know, I was going to be able to make this, this team, you know, pretty easily. Henry Marsh, John Gregoric is good. Um, you know, there, there were some other guys, but now Farley Gerber comes in here and runs an eight nineteen, and he looked good. And I remember sitting on my hotel bed and just thinking about, just thinking about my wife was there and she was, you know, what's going on, Brian. And I, I slammed my, my hand down on the bed and I said, I got to run 817 in order to make the team. And um, just a few weeks later at the Olympic trials in Los Angeles, the night before the, 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 um, the finals of the trials, then as I was falling asleep, I just had this, this, I, I saw the, the race in my mind and I wasn't, I wasn't awake, but I wasn't, all the way asleep yet, but I saw myself um, running over the last 300 meters. And I saw myself going over the last water barrier, stuttering coming out of it, um, passing, um, passing John Gregoric, but then, uh, but then crossing the line in eight minutes and 17 seconds, 0 .00. And that's exactly what happened the next day in the race. And that was, uh, that was, that was quite powerful. And I've had other things like that happen, um, enough to make me realize that, you know, the, the channels of, of, uh, the mind and the, and the brain, um, as a very strong tool, you know, to distance runners, that is, that, it, that was the most important thing that I always had. And I've always tried to develop that in my athletes. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you communicate that to your athletes? Because it seems to have come to you pretty naturally. So how do you establish a practice in an athlete um, to visualize races in that way? Well, there's, there's a lot of ways. I would, I would say by consistent by consistent verbiage and consistent uh, talking to the athletes, helping them to, you know, know what, what to be thinking about, what to be, um, what to be doing, uh, developing, just developing that confidence, developing that, that visualization. We'll, we'll do something as simple as, uh, as 150 meter strides. And, you know, at a certain time of the year, I'll start saying, okay, visualize your racing, visualize you win in that race. And, you know, just developing that mindset, okay, 
here you you have the freedom in your mind to see that race let's let's see you work that out let's see once you know how it how it works out for you i've had times when i've been in the pool or i've had kids in the pool and i call them focus 30s and they are they are running in the deep end of the pool as hard as they can and they are focusing on one little tile at the far end that's it drilling a hole right through that but they are visualizing the last you know 150 200 meters of that race and um, and i think that's very powerful stuff so your career i mean 1984 just like rocket ship nike contract olympic medal but you start at calvin in 1986 right you know you must have been able to make a living in the sport at that time like why why did you why in the middle of an olympic cycle did you not just sit at home with your feet up in between runs what inspired you to get a job <laughs> well i did have a job i was i was working in my family landscape business this and, the whole time the whole time mm. but i was i had the flexibility to to quit you know in each day when i needed to so in those first years i would work till noon and then i would you know quit for the day and um get my feet up but then uh, get the workout done that i had to get in i usually only did uh, one workout a day i i was not that big on two workouts a day because basically i was I was digging holes and lifting trees and pushing rocks and stuff like that all morning long. And so, you know, I was, I was pretty much run one, one time a day. And then, um, a, a funny thing happened. I, I was asked by coach David Toop from Calvin college to come in and just talk with him. And I, thought it was kind of weird. I really didn't have much of a relationship with him. I knew, I knew who he was. Um, they had asked me to come to Calvin. I said, no, you know, <laughs> respectfully, you know, but I'm, I'm looking for a bigger school. And, um, but so I, I showed up at his office and he said, Brian, I'm going to retire in two years and I want to write a book. I am wondering if you would consider being a hands-on coach for two years. It's only a two-year gig because they don't allow non-professors to coach here. But if you would hands-on coach these kids, then I could write my book and I'll do the administrative stuff and uh, you know we'll be a good team. And uh, it took me three months to think about it. I didn't I didn't know what to think. Everybody around me told me, don't do this. You know, you're, you're running at the Olympic level, you know, world-class running and stuff. You should not do this. This will be, this will be something that uh, takes away from your own running career. And um, three people said, yeah, you ought to think about it. You ought to, you ought to do this. You know, if it's in your heart, you ought to do that. And that one was my mother. And another one was uh, Coach Al Hookstra, um, very good friend of mine that I had done a lot of running with. But he said, "On condition that I get to coach with you," and uh, so. Um, and then my wife said, "Yeah, I think that you'd be good at this." The 
I think the reason why I was led to take the job is because just the way that I was brought up and just the way that, that I kind of lived my life, the, the running had become a job. And there was just something that just was a little bit off. And I was making pretty good money from Nike. I was making good money from the European circuit. I was happy, I was excited, but I, I felt like I was losing a little bit of the love for the sport and turning it into my job. And I didn't take the job because, you know, I was going to gain all these things. But when I started coaching and started helping these youngsters go after their goals and dreams and watch them work and watch them passionately, you know, try to accomplish things, man, did that ever encourage me. I was, I was out there loving every bit of it. Um, I love being with, with these, these kids who would give their hearts for anything. I mean, you guys, you guys know it, these D3 athletes will do anything. And, um, the biggest job that I had as a coach was to hold them back from doing too much and killing themselves. And, um, I think that I benefited from that. I think I lasted in my career longer than I would have if I didn't coach. And, um, it was, it was just an amazing thing that you would think it would be just the opposite, but I think it just really sealed the deal. I still went every Wednesday to Ann Arbor and ran with, with Ron Warhurst and Gerard Donikowski and, um, and John Shear were my training partners. So once a week, I went to Ann Arbor to get my brains beat in <laughs> basically. And, and so we would, we would hammer it out on the track. And you know what? I knew that if I was making the trip down to Ann Arbor every Wednesday, I better make it count. So I went down there and I ran hard, you know, and then, uh, so that was, that was the one really super hard workout day of the week. And, um, and it was intentional. With this two year gig in mind, was there a year where maybe it shifted, you know, from, okay, this is just a two year gig to like, wait, I want to be a coach here while also being a competitive athlete. Like when did you realize coaching was what you wanted to do? I think pretty pretty early on, I, you know, I thoroughly loved it. And then the head track coach, Ralph Hondard, he was the one that was supposed to take over after two years. He, he just said, no way, no way I'm not taking over. <laughs> you know, I'm not getting rid of, I'm not getting rid of Deemer. And he was so much fun to coach with, you know, he handled all the other events of track and field. And he was just thrilled to have somebody that that knew about distance and, and just, you know, jumped into it. And so Alan, myself, we, we kind of headed up the distance and um, we just, we just took it and we went from, uh, from big, big fish in a small pond or little fish in a small pond to, uh, you know, some pretty, pretty big fish in a, in a bigger pond. That was, that was a lot of fun. So you made two Olympic teams after you started coaching at Calvin. What, 
what's it like to, you know, head off on the weekend, make the Olympic team and then show up on Monday? Like what, what are the, how did the kids react to that? The kids were loving every bit of it. You know, they, they thought that it was great. You know, I used to win every political argument there was, you know, that because we would be on a run and, and I would just up the pace until there was nobody else left to, to, uh, to argue with me. <laughs> Those days are gone now. I, I lose every argument. <laughs> Did anyone try to take you on and, and see if they can, how long they can uh, run with you for? Oh yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had it all. So yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty good. I would probably, uh, I probably kill myself pretty, pretty quickly now anymore. Cause my mind still is a whole lot sharper than, than what I'm able to do. The, uh, the muscles are tight. And, uh, if I do too much, then they get cramped up and, and, uh, yeah, I just have to take a little bit of a step back, run a little bit slower. Let's talk a little bit about your professional career kind of winding down, which is always kind of a difficult time for an athlete and for a person, but you also had this other part of your life that was really exciting. You were coaching and having tremendous success. And so kind of talk about how priorities shifted and time shifted and just how your life changed as you know you wind down the pro career and really focus in on your coaching career. Yeah, I would say that um, 96 was that year and the Olympic trials were in Atlanta. And of course the Olympics were in Atlanta. So it was gonna be an awesome opportunity to finish out, make my fourth Olympic team and be in the United States. That was, that was the, the goal. And um, that spring was really cold up in Michigan. As a matter of fact, we didn't get any weather warmer than like 65 until uh, two weeks before the trials. And I went out and I stayed a week in Boston and I ran a steeplechase out there. I think I ran eight, eight, 821 or 823, but I felt like I was in, in really good shape, but still it was only like you know high 60s when I ran that race. And then we went down to Atlanta and it was in the 90s and probably close to 100% humidity. And I just couldn't recover. And I think that the reason I couldn't recover was because of my age. You know, I was, I was uh, what was I, about 34. And um, so I was in good shape, but I just couldn't recover like I could have earlier in, uh, in my career. And so by the time I got to the finals, I just, I just knew that I just didn't have it. And um, it was, it was tough, but, you know, I, I accepted it and said, okay, the, um, you know, the competitive career is over, but I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to go to the Olympics. I'm going to watch the Olympics in Atlanta. And I went there and I had a ball. You know, I got to see all the, the people that I knew, you know, teammates from different years and different teams were all there competing and stuff. That was a lot of fun to watch them. And, um, you know, I just, I just embraced it as, hey, this is, this is a phase that is over, but, um, you know, I'm still going to be able to contribute to the running community just in a different way. And uh, 
and yeah, I think that the coaching, uh, yeah, probably, probably even took more, um, precedence at that point. As the only non-pro athlete on this chat, I don't know, I don't know what that experience will be like leaving the sport like that, but having said that you mentioned, you know, having coaching was, was nice and, and kind of filled that void, but on the other hand, did you just kind of want to break from running, but you really couldn't because you were coaching a, a, a cross country and track program? Not really. No, I, I always recovered pretty quickly from, from things. Give me, give me a few days, you know, down and be able to get a little bit of sleep and, and a little bit of a, I don't know, uh, a slower pace where I could just kind of recoup and recover. And, uh, I was good to go again. I want to shift now, you know, kind of back into your a full-time coach, you're coaching alongside Nancy Meyer on the women's team in that mid to late nineties, Calvin was the school to be reckoned with. They won back-to-back titles. You all were, about to win your first title were on the podium. What was that like kind of just having two programs just being dominant during that time? That was a lot of fun. Things were, were definitely flowing together. We had, um, we had a good, we had a good consistent program going. We had guys, uh, both men and women that, that wanted to work, believed in themselves and, uh, and coach Al Hookstra had some, some really good kids coming year after year you know he was a fantastic recruiter and uh so we had we had everything rolling for us and and that was before uh, calvin and school started getting so expensive too so we were able to recruit and um and get a lot of kids yeah what's that recruiting process like when you haven't lost a conference meet since 87 you're on the trophy, you know, is there a specific student athlete you all are looking for, or is it just one come one, come all type of situation? No, what Alloys was looking for was, um, you know, the kid that was on that border that, that was, you know, close to getting a scholarship offered to, to them. And, uh, but, you know, maybe saw the value that a school like Calvin could provide the division three philosophy and um, yeah, he would, he would work very hard to get that caliber kid. We've talked to, you know, a good handful of coaches on this podcast who spent essentially their entire careers at one school. And I'm not sure that's necessarily the norm in coaching. So it's always kind of an interesting story. Like, you know, what, what kept you at Calvin? There must've been maybe opportunities elsewhere at certain points why why have you become so dedicated to this particular school I think for me you know number one Calvin's a great place but number two it was probably geographical it was close to my work you know I knew I wasn't going to leave the family business and I had to do the balance of of the two things you know if I was going to coach division one you know, what, what would that mean? Where would I have to, to move to? I really didn't want to move. I wanted to stay, you know, with my, with my family, my extended family, and also my wife's family. We just, we had uh, deep roots here in Grand Rapids. 
with Nancy Meyer retiring, you took over the women's program. What was that transition like now? Cause you were solely on the men and now you're inheriting essentially her program. Well, you, you have to remember, I coached the women in track and field for 36 years. So I, I got to work with the women, I would say more than 50% of the year because, you know, anything in the winter after, after coming back from Christmas break, we were working with these kids and there was a little bit of indoor track. We didn't have an official indoor track season at first, not, not until about the last 10 years or so did we have that. But, um, but then, uh, yeah, all through track. And, and then Al was also a, um, an assistant coach to Nancy. And so there was continuity and consistency all year round. And so when, when Nancy said that she wanted to retire, it just happened very naturally. And it just, yeah, it wasn't a big deal at all. I also had, I have three daughters. And so three daughters and my wife. And so, you know, I, it wasn't, it wasn't all that, uh, that much of a change in my lifestyle and you were uh, prepared for it. I was, I was. So before we get into some of the, you know, specific highlights of your career, just one thing I want to touch on. I mean, you, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that you just loved D3, but you know, you're, you're a D1 guy, you're a professional athlete. What is it about this, this non-scholarship third tier of the NCAA that you've fallen in love with over the years? Well, my very first year, this, this goes back a ways, but uh, my very first year uh, going to the national meet, I had thought that division three was kind of like a JV division. And I went to, oh guy, what was, can't remember exactly where it was. It was in uh, upstate New York and it, it had snowed and Arnie Schrader from, from Wisconsin uh, won the, the national title in division three. And then back in those days, that was on Saturday. And on Monday, you could run in the division one meet. And the division one meet was down in Arizona. And he finished 11th on Monday, two days later in the division one meet. And I'm going, wow, you know, this kid is so tough, so strong. I, I started recognizing how good some of these division three kids were. They just didn't all have the same kind of opportunities and they certainly didn't get the athletic scholarship but they sure had the heart and i loved working with that heart and passion being around the division for a while you probably have a better sense of historical performances maybe than than we are right now but what we're witnessing this year in terms of cutoffs at the 20th mark What's your, what's your take on that? It's 4, 14, 18 right now. We're recording Wednesday, May 11th. I'm sure that could change by the end of this weekend, but what's your take on just the rise in performances this year? Well, you know, when, when COVID shut people down, distance runners and especially, um, yeah, the, I, I noticed it in division three, but the distance runners were able to put their energies towards something that to them was of value. 
And we are so much about long-term gratification. It didn't matter that we weren't going to have meats. It mattered that we were going to get tougher and stronger. And someday we were going to have meats again. And we were going to have a chance to show what we had gained over this time. And I think that a lot of people just poured themselves into one thing that they knew, one thing that was familiar and didn't get bogged down in all the COVID stuff, made themselves a lot better distance runners. And so then when the NCAA said, hey, you're gonna get your whole year of eligibility back, everybody said, yes, here we go. Now we're talking. And so now you get, you get a sport that is definitely junior and senior dominated. And now you get juniors, seniors, and super seniors. And some of them are super duper seniors. <laughs> and, you know, this is like a dream come true to some of these guys. And I think that it's going to take a while to cycle through that. There's some, there's some kids. I have a kid on my team, Brandon Nepper. He ran 30-10. He ran and he's not going to make it. And, but he's, he has, you know, I think three more cross countries left. And so he's going to pour himself into making, making this, you know, the national cut, it's going to end up making him tougher, but it was pretty disappointing to have so many guys, you know, run away from him this year. Yeah. As we head towards the national meet, we mentioned earlier that you all are heading to North Central get to reminisce with Frank Gramoroso and, and be D3 Glory Day podcast pals. But as you kind of are reminiscing on your career as a whole, what's been maybe your philosophy that's brought so much success to Calvin, whether it's team culture or what you instill into your athletes? Well, I think that they have to enjoy the run. They have to enjoy what they're doing. And, um, enjoy the hard work. They need, they need to be able to look at themselves in the mirror at the end of the day and, and like what they see. And, you know, when you, when you do things that the normal person would give up on, when you stick with it, when you are tenacious and you, and you, um, you stick to the tough stuff and don't give up. And especially if you have a little bit of success doing it or somebody notices, it's amazing how your confidence grows. And then the whole cycle starts over again. And you can, you can just grow a lot of, um, of positives of, um, you know, you know, just understanding, you know, how much you are growing and developing and daring to stretch yourself, daring to, to make that next level. It's, um, is quite empowering when you start developing a role like that. I ask pretty much every coach that we have on this question and just about everybody dodges it to some extent, which, which I understand because a career like yours is, is kind of impossible to boil down to particular moments. Some because there've been so many obviously, but, but if you could cite any specific, either like highlights, memories of races, or even individual athletes that have had maybe an outsized effect on you over the years? Or, or is there anything that really sticks out in your mind? Yeah, I would say, okay, so, so first you asked, you know, any experiences that, that really stick out. I would say 
the Olympic trials when, when I made that team in 84, that, that just um, opened the floodgates. And that, um, that was quite exciting. The, the greatest moment in my running was probably winning the bronze medal in 1984. And that changed my life. I went from a person who would not ever speak in public to having to give uh, 14 appearances in 19 days. And that changed my life forever. And I have, I have, uh, <laughs> I've been forced to come out of my shell. And that has been a confidence builder in many ways that, um, you know, goes through my life and not just in, in uh, the running. I think the biggest honor was in 1992 when the USA men's track and field team voted for me to be the team captain. And that was just mind blowing. I, I couldn't believe it. They said, okay, um, we're gonna take nominations and you guys go on out, out of the room, we're gonna vote. And uh, we came back in and uh, I said, Congratulations, Brian Deemer, you're the, the men's track and field um, team captain. Who did you vote for? Um, I, I, I don't know if I can remember. It wasn't myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there was, you know, Carl Lewis was on the team. Roger Kingdom was on the team. It was probably one of those guys. Did you also answer for your coaching career too, which is maybe a bigger question? My, my very first year coaching, then a kid named John Lumpkus came and walked on the team. He was from Wisconsin and uh, he was, he was a goof and, but he, um, he got faster and faster. He would always sit right behind me as I drove the van and he'd have his long legs up in my back. And, but he would always just always be there and we would be driving through Chicago and I'd have, you know, people that, that are driving by They're they're looking at me and, you know, they're looking, looking over their shoulder and stuff. And finally I figured out what they were doing. John had a, had a sign on the window saying bronze medalist in the Olympic steeplechase. <laughs> Everybody that drove by in Chicago was looking at me and, you know, to see what a bronze medalist in the steeplechase looked like apparently. So anyway, he ended up making the, the Olympic trials in 1996. I actually ran in the same uh, trial heat with him in Atlanta. And that was, that was quite special to be in that Olympic trials with one of my own athletes. Was there pressure to beat him? No, or did no. You, or would that be an honor to you to have him beat you? Ooh, there it is. Uh, he was never going to beat me. <laughs> no, no, it was, no, I didn't see it as pressure. Team must've thought that was really cool to have a coach and an athlete Absolutely. in there. You know, when you, you look back at your career, it's hard to maybe summarize what you've taken away from it, but are there any lessons that you've gotten from athletes that are going to stick with you into your coaching retirement? One young man in, in 1988, I had a stress fracture in my sacrum and it was from hurtling on, on a cold day. And I had been running 
a lot of miles. I was stiff. I was sore, but um, I was I had to get the hurdle drills in. And I remember running the, the drills and not doing very well at all. I, I just wasn't flexible. And the next day I, I ran a real long run on a very hilly trail run. And uh, just all of a sudden, you know, going down a hill, my, my back just, just gave out. And I, I knew I was in trouble. I knew something had happened. It was a stress fracture in my sacrum. And um, that, that happened on April 15, tax day. And then, and then the rest of the spring, I, was, I, just, I ran in the deep end of the pool and I biked on an exercise bike, a, a Schwinn Air, Airdyne that had the, you know, the arm thing so that I was, yep, I was doing that. And I was doing a lot of visualizing and stuff, but I wasn't getting very far. And then I went, my brother went up to Canada fishing and he asked me to go along and there's no way that I would normally do something like that. Uh, you know, with the Olympics, the trials on the line and stuff like that, but I wasn't going anywhere fast. And, um, and uh, matter of fact, the, the week before, then Dirk Walcott and one of my kids, he came into the pool and I was running in the pool, talking with Al and I was, I was, I'd about had it and said, who am I fooling? You know, this isn't going anywhere you know, I don't know, I don't know if I should even try to do this anymore. And he got down on the pool deck and he, he had tears in his eyes and he said, Brian, you can't quit yet. You can't quit yet. All of us, you know, you keep us going all the time. You got to finish this thing. And so I decided right then and there that for, for the athletes I coached, I had to put up or shut up. I was going to tow the line at the Olympic trials in New Orleans. And um, so then the next week um, I, had, I had said, okay, I'll go up fishing with you, but I have to take an exercise bike so I can, so I can ride. And uh, so <laughs> I, I developed the impossible workout that day because the workout was to ride my bike out as hard as I could until I was dead. Couldn't go anymore. And then I was going to turn around and, um, and limp back home basically on the bike. And um, so we were out 35 miles from the nearest telephone, eight miles off the nearest gravel road on a two track. And um, I, was, I was out there on the bike and I was flying. And it was kind of a gravelly two track. It was a logging road, but it was all gravel. And, um, and so I was flying up and down the hills. I came down a hill and around the corner and there was a bear in the path. And I slammed on the brakes, the bear took off, never, never attacked me or anything, but it, it scared me a lot. I kept going but I kept thinking more and more, oh boy, I don't know. I don't know if I wanna get out here and, and get attacked by a bear. So I, I hit the stopwatch and I turned around 
And the motivation made me ride back faster than I rode out in the first place. So I negative split that workout. And then I knew that I was in shape. And I came back from that fishing trip um, the first week of June. And um, people said that I, talking about racing and stuff, I would, my eyes would bore holes in people. I was so intense. And I just, I knew I was going to give everything that I had. Two weeks later, I ran uh, 816 at the New Orleans Olympic trials and won it. And uh, without any hurdle drills, without, <laughs> without a whole lot of confidence, but um, here we go. So with, with that lesson, how do you tell that to a college age kid that like, Hey, if you're hurt, you can still cross train really hard and it can help your fitness. Like, are you able to convey that message to your athletes? You know, I think that I, I do, um, you know, back when Al was, when Al was coaching with me, he would do that all the time. It's easier to, you know, to brag somebody else up. It's, it's harder to do it when you're, you know, trying to talk about yourself or whatever. So, you know, I, I think that Al always did that kind of thing. And, and, um, you know, he would fire up the, um, the kids very, very much. So, you know, I think that, you know, over, over time and stuff, you, you, you probably forget that, Hey, this, this coach of mine has stories, you know, um, every once in a while they'd be asking stories on the, on the bus ride or the van ride and stuff. But, but, you know, I think sometimes, you know, you, you just get to, you just get to be doing life together and you, you forget some of those things. So coach, you have the, what will be your last national meet as a head coach coming up here in a couple of weeks, Stu and I will be out there. What moments are you going to be focused on kind of enjoying just a little bit more this time? And, you know, you'll be looking at things kind of through the eyes of somebody who, who knows that this is the last time they'll experience it in this way. So what are you looking forward to most? I love watching the, the athletes, whether they're my athletes or others. I really love watching them perform. I love watching what motivates them and what they can uh, dig out of themselves. And uh, that's just always intriguing to me. And so, you know, I've been able to watch a number of these kids for, for many years. And uh, so it'll be fun. I love, uh, I love spectating the sport. I never used to, it's, it was always, I don't, I don't want to watch it. I just want to do it. But I've really grown in that department and I really am a fan of the sport and I love watching the kids. What are you going to miss day to day from the coaching life? The interaction with the kids, you know, like today at practice, we just sat around and, and talked about, talked about things and, you know, some goofing around, some jokes, some, you know, just, Hey, what's, what are the logistics for going to this meet at North central? And, you know, what are we going to do with, uh, you know, the rest of the day, we're going to go out for breakfast. We're gonna, Oh yeah. We're going to have a good breakfast and, you know, those kind of things. And, and, uh, I think that 
those relationships and those times are going to be missed. We mentioned earlier about advice to coaches, maybe with the, on the family side of it, but for coaches who are just getting started, I'm sure Ron Warher has played a, a huge role in your coaching career, but what advice would you give young coaches who are just starting off and, and trying to make it a long 36 year career like you've had? I think the very first thing that you need to do is, is have a coaching partner. I think that it is very important to realize that you cannot be everything to everyone. And um, it is really good to have somebody who covers some of your weaknesses. So, you know, I, I actually built quite a, quite a coaching team around me because of my work. And, you know, I was, I was, I was quite busy with, uh, with, landscape designing and, and selling jobs and then, you know, coordinating them, getting them all done and stuff. I needed help. And so I would take a person who was passionate about the kids and I would find out where their talents lied and, um, and they would help out. They would coach accordingly. And I think that I empowered other coaches to help me coach. And so, you know, we did a, we did a great job together as a, team of coaches. I think that's, that's the biggest thing. Um, but the, the most important thing is to have that one coach that you can talk with after a rough day at practice and say, Hey, you know, Hey, we, we're trying our best. And, um, you know, here's maybe what we have to tweak or, um, this person needs a little bit of that. And that person needs something, something a little bit different to be able to bounce things off from, that person is key. So your college coach, Ron Warhurst, retired from University of Michigan, but now is well known in the running community as a professional coach with Mason Furlick, Hobbs Kessler, um, Nick Willis. Uh, do, you, do you ever look at that and be like, hey, maybe I'd like to coach some post-collegiates, a little stable of your own? Probably not. I, th I think that, you know, I, I do see myself supporting Calvin athletics and, and certainly, you know, other good, other good runners of the community and stuff. But I, I think that, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see, we'll see where it goes. I'm sure there's enough Calvin alumni that are still getting after it post collegially that would love to be coached by you again. Yeah, there, there are quite a few. Well, coach, we know you have a busy weekend ahead traveling to my neck of the woods in Naperville. So we're going to let you sign off here, but really thank you for your time, taking us through your career and just the service that you've given to division three as a whole. Calvin has been well-known amongst the ranks. So it's great to hear who was at the helm of it. Well, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for the interview, you guys appreciate you. That's all for another episode of D3 Glory Days. It's very fun for me uh, and Stu to sit down with Coach Deemer. Thanks for your time, Coach. It was great to talk to you. We hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, give us a follow on social media. Check the show notes for ways to support this podcast and uh, leave a rating and review wherever you're listening. Coach Deemer has got a 5K road race coming up and we're going to patch him in here to tell you 
a little bit about it. Until then, here's to the glory days. All right. Hey, we're going to have a great race at the, uh, the Brian Deemer family of races on Saturday, June 11th. Uh, come on out and run a fast 5K in Cutlerville, and uh, it should be pretty hot. The streets are going to be hot, and uh, yeah, come check us out. Do you love track and field? Well, I'm sure by now everyone knows how much all of us in the Sidious Mag family love track and field and how much we enjoy sharing that love with you. Well, we've got a few big love-sharing ideas in the works for the upcoming season, none bigger than what we've got planned for in Eugene, Oregon. Our summer of Hayward begins with the Nike Prefontaine Classic on Memorial Day weekend, where Team USA's men's and women's 10,000-meter teams will be determined. We'll then travel to the Toyota USATF Outdoor Championships in late June, which will determine the rest of Team USA where we cap everything off in Eugene for Oregon 22 for the World Athletic Championships in mid-July, where Team USA will be the home team. We'll be there for every competitive moment in Hayward Field and hope to create some moments of our own pre- and post-meet with interviews, analysis, and behind-the-scenes stories with some of the track and field's most interesting athletes. At Hayward Magic on Instagram is also gearing up for all the action happening this season, and they want to see how you're preparing for the summer events at Hayward. Whether you're in high school, in college, or professional, show how you're preparing by sharing your training process on Instagram by using the hashtag #MakeItToHayward in the description. At Hayward Magic, will select and feature the gutsiest posts in their feed, and who knows? The best submissions just might be compiled into a reel of story highlights and live on the Hayward Magic Instagram forever. The summer of Hayward will be unmissable, so you better not miss out. Be there if you can. Tickets are on sale now, so head to sidiousmag.com backslash summer of Hayward. We love track and field.